You're listening to The Tool Belt, a manufacturing podcast focusing on logistics, safety, operations, and breaking industry news. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Plant Services Toolbelt podcast. Uh, today, we're talking with Mike Barrett. He's the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Eurofence Test Oil, and he's here today to talk with us about oil analysis. Um, his LinkedIn bio includes the fact that he's currently helping reliability practitioners maintain the health of their rotating equipment through Sando Oil Analysis Services, and he specializes in helping teams develop programs or providing guidance and support in getting a program back on track. So Mike is with us today to talk about some of those experiences, talk about what, what makes programs work, uh, what trouble spots programs run into, and where you might want to take a look at improving your own oil analysis program. So Mike, thanks very much for being with us today. Tom, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Look forward to our time together here. Well, I'm excited about this conversation because Reliable Plant trade show was only about a month and a half ago and that's heavily focused on lubrication and oil analysis um you know plant services does in every other year survey focusing on predictive maintenance as well and our research shows us clearly of the four or five most commonly used techniques oil analysis is far and away the most popular and the most used so maybe we can start with the question in your opinion as a as a 30-year veteran of this space what are some of the reasons why oil analysis is so widely used? Well, you know, I, I would say that the financial cost to get involved with oil analysis is virtually nothing. You know, it's uh, there's not a lot of upfront investment to buy any sort of hardware or software to get involved. It's really a matter of getting sample bottles from the lab taking an oil sample and sending it in. Everybody, I think, at this point realizes the benefits of oil analysis are significant in keeping your equipment up and running and essentially extending oil changes. I mean, those, those are two main reasons why you do oil analysis. And people understand that. And when they're looking at, you know, which technology should I get involved with, they, they, you know, there's not nothing upfront financially to purchase to get involved with oil analysis. Vibration has hardware, software. Infrared has hardware, software. Ultrasound has hardware, software. So it's it's more of a financial commitment, and I think it's pretty easy to get a program going, but to keep an effective program alive is much more difficult. Before we started recording our conversation, you mentioned that there are a lot of complementary technologies, of like those three you mentioned to oil analysis. So um, that isn't to say that oil analysis is um, superior to the others, but like you said, it, it's 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 a good entry point to folks trying to get perhaps more proactive, more predictive about their maintenance scheduling. Yes, it, it's it's really all about predictive and uh, condition-based monitoring. You know, back when I started, there was no such thing. People just would take oil samples, and if they found a problem, maybe someone would make a corrective action and fix it. You know, as we developed reliability-centered maintenance practices, 
the the philosophy changed in that you would want to look at your individual equipment in the plant and then do a sort of reliability assessment and say how can this equipment fail what are the specific faults that can cause it to fail and then the idea is okay now we're going to take a predictive technology that could find that fault so you know you could have a lot of faults and maybe oil analysis is never going to find a specific fault on that failure so you wouldn't want to implement it but a lot of our customers have gone through the reliability process and understand their faults and you know what i see is vibration and oil analysis working together to find a lot of machine faults you know misalignment is probably the biggest you know vibration would pick that up oil analysis picks that up and when you get when you get a high wear metal count and you get a high frequency on your uh, vibration a, a corrective action is go out there and take a look at the, the gearbox say and is it out of alignment and we fix it by putting it back in alignment i mean it's that kind of thinking that has developed from the early 90s to today so they are complementary in that fashion well let's get into the the real meat of our discussion about programs that's something you've been specializing in uh, again for decades now and I'm excited to to hear from you uh, some of your insights with meeting so many plant teams and developing so many programs out there, oil analysis programs. In your opinion, are there there are one, two, or three things you think that make a program work? We we can talk about the the, the risk points later on. But let's start with what works. I can tell you, I can give you three right off the top of my head. We we set up like f- five programs a week, and the ones that work. And what are most important is you have an owner, you know, who's in charge, who's who's the champion of the program, who's got some passion about oil analysis. Two is, do you stay in compliance with taking your samples? We get programs that start all the time and say, you know, these 30 machines we're going to sample monthly, these 20 quarterly, these 50 twice a year. And do you stay in compliance on that sample schedule? And the third is, how are you getting your samples? Are, do you have a good sample point so that the samples we are getting from you are, are, are producing good data? And is it a consistent person who takes the samples? You know, so if we can get a good sample and you're doing it on a set schedule and you have someone who's passionate about it, who likes looking at the reports and then I guess the fourth would be, are you taking corrective action? We find problems all the time. You send me 100 samples and I'm going to find 30 problems. But are you actually doing anything to fix those problems? Because you're going to send me those same 100 samples next month and I'm going to find the same 30 problems. And then I'm going to raise my hand and say, what are we doing here? Why are we taking samples if you're not going to fix anything? So that that's that's. You know, the top four thing, if you have those four things, you have a good program. When you don't have those four things, it's not as good. You know, and I'm struck by that last one, especially. We can talk about the first three points. That's all about uh, the actual conducting the oil analysis work. But that fourth, I've heard so often where if there's not a way to translate the data you receive from the samples into effective corrective action, you may as well have not done the work. You may as well just burn the money. Uh, That's right. 
whether it's a CMMS system, whether it's uh, some, some sort of even a paper tracking system, there's got to be a way, a, a mechanism in place to trigger work. It's trigger work. And so someone's got to put a corrective action into the CMMS. But uh, to, what I see is people don't even know what the corrective action should be. We may find a fault on a, on a specific sample mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe it's high iron or high copper or high water, whatever it is. And there they may not have enough knowledge in oil analysis to take that report and understand it and say, huh, this is the corrective action I need to put in. And it's interesting because we have a, a services group that goes out to the field and takes samples. And so they're around the equipment all the time. And, and this is a huge benefit of oil analysis. It forces you to go out into the plant and be around your equipment. And there's so much knowledge you could pick up just by smelling and listening and touching. And so these guys in the field can get a lot of knowledge around the equipment, but then when they come back and the analysis is done, our, some of these customers have these guys actually enter work orders into the system because all the customer wants is to fix problems we find. Mm-hmm. So once the work orders in their system, somebody's got to fix it. And so they sort of eliminate that sort of paralysis of looking at a report and not knowing what to do because our guys are around the equipment. They get a report back that says, hey, you know, you had high iron and, the, you know, because they're around it, they'll say, oh, yeah. I mean, when I was around it, the thing was shaking like a tree, you know, so it's out of, mis- <laughs> you know, it's misaligned. You know, that's what the work order should be. So th- it's that. You know, if you have someone like that in a plant who's got the knowledge of what a report means, who's mm-hmm. been around the equipment, can understand it, then it's easy to get a work order into the system. But that that's a big problem. Would you say in terms of your like your recipe for program success that the responsibility for that part of success lies with the project champion? Is, is it the champion who can is supposed to look ahead and forecast these potential pain points, especially the last one, and say, okay, we do have to have a system in place to get work scheduled as needed, not just sampling. The, cha- the champion, someone, you know, like in our industry, there's MLA certification, machinery lubrication analyst, MLA. So that is someone who can understand a report. So if someone on the team, someone on the team should have an MLA certification because they're the ones who are going to be looking at these reports and being able to translate it into a work order. Okay. Now, it may not be the champion. The champion just has to be passionate about a program and keep it running mm-hmm. and, and keep the sample compliance on track because it, it eventually what happens is if you, you lose, and I see it all the time, is we have a great champion and then he switches jobs mm-hmm. either within the company or leaves the company and goes somewhere else. And all of a sudden you lose a champion and, and then you start to see the sample fr- frequency diminish because someone's not as interested as the champion who started it. No, that was a smooth transition into what are some of the challenges. Um, are, are there other common challenge points that you see where 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 people do people have trouble saying taking the same sample from the same location? Is it uh, is it even before the sampling process takes place? Is it issues with making sure the oil is clean before it goes in the machines? What, what are some of the more common ones? 
Yeah, a, a lot of it is from start, you know, setting up the equipment database. Mm. You know, we need a, a an equipment roster to get set up before we can do anything. And sometimes it's as simple as they, they send us the roster and we don't even have lubricant. We don't even know what oil's in there to start mm. analyzing. And they don't even know, which is even worse. So, you know, that's that's a big problem to start. And then it's really... Where do you get a sample from? Has anybody been trained on how to take a proper sample? Mm-hmm. Because the good programs typically have sent their team to training for MLT training, machinery mm-hmm. lubrication technician. And those mm-hmm. are the guys out in the field around the equipment taking the samples. So it's it's getting a consistent sample is a big challenge. And, you know, it's, it's not a fun job for people. I mean, you know, the, who... People aren't raising their hand and say, I want to go out and pull 100 samples every month. That sounds like fun. So it's it's a challenge. And so what happens is you get different people taking the samples who do not take it the same way, who do not take it in the same spot. Okay. So then you get variance in the data that we're sending back to them. It's like, wow. A lot of times you could say, you know, we have a couple of customers who have dedicated people who take samples. And they may have to take 400 samples a month and there'll be two or three of them, their, their team, and they're paid on sample compliance. You know, if they get bonus based on hitting 98% sample compliance. Now, our analysts look at these reports all the time from them. Someone goes on vacation, so they fill somebody else in to take the samples and the analysts all of a sudden looking at the reports and saying, wait a minute. You know, why is all the data out of whack? You know, either someone's not putting the right labels on the bottles or someone's taking samples in a different spot. So it's 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 so crucial to get consistent sample taking and, and even sample takers. Mm. So that that's that's a problem because it's you just don't get consistency in the program. It, training, it, I, I would say Tom, okay, training. It, it comes down to training. Is that you know, when, when we started this back in the 90s, there was no training and the, there weren't really trade shows, you know, so there mm-hmm. wasn't, it, it was a lot of education we were doing. And then right. in 2000, you started to see training programs develop and conferences. Yeah. So it, it today, there's a heck of a lot more training and there's all sorts of people certified MLA, MLT. So it, it's it's really nice to see, I guess. But there's still pl- there's so many plants who are starting programs, mm-hmm. they don't even know what MLA and MLT are. You're framing that perspective for me because I joined Plant Services in 2014, not even 10 years ago. And I look at, say, the Reliable Plant Conference, which has been around for 25, I think, 26 this year. Um, 90, 99 is when it started. 99. I believe. And, I believe. <laughs> and it's, it, as you say, these are, it feels to me like the show's been around forever. It's all I know. But clearly, 30 years is not forever. It's 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 still a relatively new science in many, in a lot of ways. It is. Or just or discipline, should say. Yeah. No. And that show has exploded from when it started back in 2000 to where it is today. I mm-hmm. mean, it, it's it's international. You know, when it started, it was a little show out in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you know, you'd, you'd get 100, 150 people there. Now you get 1,500. Yeah. So it's. It's nice to see there's a lot of awareness around lubrication, mm-hmm. you know, uh, keeping your oil clean, lube rooms, you know, people 
people don't understand the importance of having a dedicated room to keep your new oil and you know having processes in place to filter it you can i walk into plants all the time and you know one of the things i ask is let's go look at your lube room and they'll say well we got a barrel sitting over there and there's a barrel in that corner and whenever they need oil they just come and get it out of the barrels i'm like ah it's hardly a lube room so it's you know are you i mean that's just part of the whole lubrication process is are you putting clean dry oil into your machines that was one of the first eye openers for me was understanding how quickly oil can get uh contaminants in there and contaminants don't even have to be that large of course it's it's just a matter of if if they're not in a as you say a clean dedicated lube room it's going to be and it's going to be a challenge to keep even filtered oil clean no, it is. There's, I mean, you have a system and you have a filter on it. You could have pretty clean oil in that machine. And now all of a sudden you're taking new oil that you think is clean and you haven't yeah. filtered it and you're putting mm-hmm. it in the machine. You're just put, you're putting dirty oil in on top of clean oil, you know? So it's, yeah. you know, th- that, that was a big problem, but you know, part of these conferences in the early 2000s really stressed this whole cleanliness issue of oil and and that is very big i mean particle count is a test we run that Mm -hmm. looks at the overall cleanliness of the oil and in the past that was done on turbine oil or hydraulic oil only and now we have customers who have big gearboxes and they want to know how clean their oil is because they will filter it to, to improve the cleanliness. And they'll give us a target cleanliness code to say, we want to keep the oil below that. If it goes above it, you need to flag it because then we'll bring in a filter cart and filter the oil because mm-hmm. it's so important to us to keep it clean. But that mentality wasn't always there. And it's right. it's the training and the conferences that has helped that. Well, it's good to see that plus people like yourself in the programs you're developing have driven this to where we are today, which is where we can talk about uh, some of the some of the pinch points and some of some of the ingredients that go into making a good program. So yeah, it's well. I mean it's cool some of the things we do with customers. Now, you know, a big thing is data ingestion. You know, some of these bigger corporate accounts have that we do multiple plants for, you know, they, they have people, corporate guys who don't want to sit there and look at oil analysis reports. I mean, they, right. they could look at 400, 500 in a month. They want to take the data and they have some sort of AI, Power BI type of platform that they can bring the data into and maybe integrate it with vibration data or infrared data. And then doing some sort of analysis really pinpoint the machines across the fleet that are having problems and not just looking at an oil analysis report from a gearbox at a power plant it's 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 much much bigger thinking let let me close our interview with uh, a cost question uh you mentioned that this is one of the more cost effective or the most cost effective sort of predictive maintenance approaches um if a champion wants to start a program or even improve the program and they're they get challenged by their superiors to estimate the ROI. Um, is this the kind of thing where the average technician or champion can identify an ROI pretty quickly on oil analysis? It's it's not that easy. Okay. You, you, what what is the e, e probably easy? It's easy to look at 
eliminating oil changes. So most people have time-based oil changes. Right. We, ch we change our oil every year. Now, if you implement an oil program, you should eliminate that immediately and say, mm -hmm. you know what, we're only going to change our oil when the reports tell us to change the oil. So, so you could look at that cost savings. Now, mm -hmm. the other big savings is increased equipment reliability, mm -hmm. which means you know less maintenance costs and more productivity. So, so that is harder to determine an ROI. I mean, you could say we're going to have more equipment uptime. Mm -hmm. Well, how much more? I mean, can you translate 5% more uptime into 5% more productivity output? You know, so that's that's part of the OI. It's always it's been difficult to do because it's it's a cost savings based on a piece of machine not failing mm -hmm. if you're doing oil analysis. But to determine, you know, when exactly that's going to happen because you could look at it all of a sudden we, we get a report back and you have high iron we say oh you better go out and check that gearbox you go check the gearbox and say oh if we didn't come out here check it and do this it would have failed in two months and cost us a hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars so doing oil analysis just saved you a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> you know it's, yeah people yep. understand it but it's hard to put it on paper you almost have to look at something like mean time between failure and look at that time stretch first before the dollar figures come back when it comes to uptime and downtime. Yeah. I hear you loud and clear that the most immediate cost savings that can be calculated on paper would be uh, freeing up resources from doing regular time-based sampling and saying, okay, hey, we, we, we reduced these routes. Now these folks can go work on other jobs. Well, I... We could keep talking some more, and I hope we do talk, talk again, Mike, but I, I want to thank you for being here today um, and talking specifically about um, why some programs work and why others struggle. Mike, thank you so much. Tom, that was a lot of fun. Thank you.